This is a podcast produced by Visionaries Norway. Hello everyone and thank you so much for joining us again for this fourth episode in our podcast series. As usual, these episodes are produced by Visionaries Norway and so if you have any questions, feedback or comments for us, please feel free to contact us through our Facebook page. We really appreciate that. In the last two episodes, we've been covering echolocation, both theoretically and practically. Today, we're moving on to another subject, which is the white cane. My guess would be that when sighted people think about blind people, one of the first things they think about is the cane. And the cane is loved and hated by blind people all over the world. So without further ado, here's Daniel Kish. Grab your tea, coffee, whatever you prefer, rest back and enjoy. My experience with the cane. So it's a long and sorted tale. Um, um, the, the, the short version uh, is that I had a lot of resistance to using the cane. Um, it took a long time for me to become comfortable and now I'm entirely comfortable. It's with me all the time. I don't even think about it. I use it like breathing. But uh, it wasn't that way when I was younger. Um, uh, I'm 52 years old. In, in the US, uh, when I was a child, we didn't do cane training, or really any mobility training, uh, with blind children. Um, I didn't begin receiving regular cane training until I was about 12. By then, I had learned to get around using my own methods, um, so I mostly self-taught. And blind children in those days just learned to get around however they could. Um, many would have used guides, many would have had people to get them around. Um, others would just not have gotten around and would have just sort of been passive or isolated or wh whatever. I wasn't particularly socially adept or mature as a young person. I did have friends, a few, uh, who could put up with me, but I... Um, really was the kind of kid that uh, did my own thing in my own way and if people didn't want to do it with me I was happy to go off and do it myself so um, I didn't have a lot of people helping me around um, it's not necessarily that I would have minded people helping me around I suppose it's just that I wasn't social enough for it to really become a method for me so I did a lot of my own stuff in my own way I, I got around um, without a cane uh, and without guides for the most part as a young kid and I did it by clicking really I, I, I developed what I now call flash sonar at a very early age and I I was a, an active rambunctious child who loved to get into things and um, I used clicking to do that uh, I walked to school I attended regular public schools. I walked to school. I walked to friends' houses. I, I got around town. 
myself. Um, and so that's the good news. Um, the, the, the problem, I mean, if I, if I had anything that I would have changed uh, growing up as a child is I would have preferred to have been introduced to a cane much younger because uh, it was a very, very hard thing to um, find my freedom, really, to, to do what I wanted to do, how I wanted to do it, without a cane. And I uh, had to pick and choose my environments. I had to pick and choose my activities. There were times when I'd learn an environment when I knew no one else was watching because I didn't want other people to watch me kind of struggling, you know, to learn it. But once I learned it, then I was okay. Um, I would go out of my way to avoid certain environments if there was too much noise, if there were too many people. The, the scourge of my existence were those leaf blowers. I don't know if you have them here in Norway, but they're these extremely loud, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. horrible, oh, horrible, monstrous things. Nasty. And I'd literally, I'd, I'd sometimes go around the block, really, rather than ha <laughs> have to pass through an area with a leaf blower, because clicking, you know, hardly works if you're walking past one of these things, right? So um, I had to, like I say, pick and choose my environments. And um, I felt very self-conscious a lot of times. I mean, I was caught between a rock and a hard place because either I was self-conscious using the cane or I was self-conscious not using the cane because as I got older I felt like I was exposed and what if I tripped over something or what if I ran into someone or whatever so um, I went through a period as a teenager where the cane had been introduced but now I didn't want to use it because I felt kind of stigmatized by it mm -hmm. Um, we find, of course, that if children are exposed to it when they are young, and I mean younger than five or six or seven, I mean, you know, three or two or one, I mean, the earlier the better. There's no, there's no such thing as too young to learn to use a cane. So the younger they are, the more accepting they are and the more likely they are to just consider it as part of their way of getting around, really. Uh, a natural extension of themselves. I didn't have that. So um, uh, I didn't begin using a cane on a regular basis until my early 20s, to be honest. And um, it was because the world had gotten too big and too complex and for me to continue reasonably getting around without using a cane. And so uh, when I adopted the use of a cane, um, I, and I was actually a guide dog user for a short period. So uh, for about six years, most people don't know this, but I had a dog, loved the dog dearly, but found it very, really limiting and constraining in a lot of ways. The dogs are a lot of work and there are a lot of things they can't do contrary to popular belief. So, um, you know, once the dog retired, I never got another one. Um, and that's when I began using a cane. Um, I was 24 and <clears throat> fortunately even though I hadn't used a cane when I was younger my cane skills were actually pretty good for whatever reason um, and my mobility was already pretty good I was already getting around so the cane just enhanced that for me I mean it made it easier for me to use echolocation 
more freely and comfortably and to be able to focus on the things that echolocation is good at and let the cane focus on the things that the cane is good at. So over time, both being a cane user and now being a cane instructor or a mobility specialist, which I have been for now 20 years or so, having worked with literally oh, hundreds of children's and children and thousands of adults, um, I've developed a, a cane protocol, if you will, uh, which consists of both training and cane qualities, cane characteristics, that I find easier to teach, easier to use, easier to learn for a wider range of people, people of all ages, people of all mobility challenges, whatever, you know, if you have multiple multiple ability issues um, or if you're older or if you're partially sighted or totally blind it doesn't matter if you're from India or Norway or or the US um, this works and so um, one of the things that we uh, concentrate on is what I call the full-length cane so I'll get a little bit into the science behind this um, it's in, I, I do have a textbook. It's called Echolocation and Flash Sonar. It's available from American Printing House for the Blind uh, in the US. It's a good book. It's a fascinating book. I oh, appreciate that. That's my advertisement. I appreciate books. that, yes, <laughs> yes. I do go a lot into, into um, what I call the perception cane. So what defines a perception cane? A perception cane is a cane that, is, that becomes uh, easily a natural extension of your body um, which not every cane does and not every uh, type of training person to use a cane does. So there is a science called uh, the science of peripersonal space. And peripersonal space is basically the science of how our tools, whatever those tools may be, become extensions of our perceptual system. They become part of our body space concept. So whether you're a fencer or a runner or a skier or a golfer or a bicyclist, you know, or a construction worker, you're, the implements that you use become an extension of your perceptual system. You almost regard them as part of your body. If you're a runner, it's your shoes, I suppose. If, it's, if, if you're a golfer, it's the clubs you use. If you're a a skier or a, a you know Nordic walker. It's your it's your hiking sticks. It's your trekking poles. Uh, if you're a fencer, it's your sword or your foil. So um, it's very odd to me that this science of peripersonal space hasn't really found its way into the blindness field to address the qualities of our cane and the way we use our cane. And if you look at this science. Um, it would dictate that the cane be as light as possible and that it um, be balanced in a certain way and that it be um, uh, long enough to communicate information in a natural way to the user. And what the heck does that mean? So I was taught, when I was taught to use a cane, I was taught by the traditional method. My cane came up to about my sternum, and it was, well, back in those days, we used 
low-grade aluminum. So nowadays, you know, we have access to space-aged materials. Um, the cane I currently use is made of a, of a, is a Swarovski cane. It's available from the Czech Republic, and it's made from a composite of Kevlar and carbon fiber and, I think, graphite. So it's, so it's bulletproof. It's bulletproof as well as being light <laughs> as a feather. Yes. Yes. Um, but uh, I... Um, I, when I began working with blind preschoolers, they're the ones who began to teach me um, that the cane they were given when I arrived was not really the cane they wanted. They'd never had a blind instructor before. Of course, all their instructors had been sighted. This is back in the, the mid-90s, 1990s. They'd grab my cane, and they'd drop their cane, and off they'd go with my cane. So there was something about my cane being ridiculously long for them, but something about the longer cane that they wanted. Um, another instructor who was a traditional instructor, but he said to me, um, when I get these junior high school kids into, because he was teaching you know, seventh year up, these kids come into my program and they're completely unable to use their cane. They've not been taught properly prior to using their cane and he said he said the quickest way i found them to get uh, the quickest the quickest way i found to get functional cane use is to just give them a cane that's this long and he showed me how long it was and it like kind of came up to their forehead and i was very skeptical at the time i thought wow that's just way long that's like why are these kids using canes that long but when i watched them indeed their cane skill, it might not have been exactly pretty, but it was functional. I mean, they were instantly able to use their canes effectively. So, you know, I had two other experiences. The third experience I had was um, uh, a boy who came into my office working at the Blind Children's Learning Center uh, before I started World Access for the Blind. He came into my office with his parents from Mexico and parents from Mexico uh, were basically saying that um, they, they really wanted their son to use a cane. They realized how important it was. He was six years old at the time, hadn't received any training in Mexico, uh, and didn't want to use a cane, didn't like the cane, wasn't interested, um, and they didn't know what to do. And so I started teaching them kind of what I would do as parents. Um, we have different techniques for, for, for getting kids to be comfortable using their cane. And uh, one of them is you get an adult cane and you basically use it with the, the child. So it's almost like, think of it as like a tandem cane use. So the child's holding on toward the, the, the bottom of the cane and the adult's supporting the cane from the top and you sort of use it together. And that's kind of what I was showing them. But the boy basically, and some kids will do this, he just took my cane. Like he decided, you know what, I'm just going to use this. And he took my cane and found his way out the door of my office and began walking down the sidewalk. And his parents were hurrying after him because now he's moving fast. <laughs> and, you know, his parents at first, they said, you know, they tried to stop him. And I said, no, 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 let him go. Let's see what he does. So they couldn't believe how comfortable he was and how quickly he was moving, you know, with my cane in his hand. And... Um, he found his way to our playground and started. He spent half an hour wandering around our playground. He didn't speak English, so he, you know, 
wasn't communicating with anyone. He didn't understand the, uh, the, the, the lesson I was giving his parents, but he just decided this is the cane that I thought would be inter- that he thought would be interesting. So, so I, I noted that in my mind, and the, the, the last um, experience I had um, that really kind of brought home to me the need to rethink how we teach the cane and the kind and the qualities that are inherent in a in a good cane um, was an older adult. He was anything in his sixties, and um, was struggling with his cane. And I, I looked, and his cane was again about typical sternum length, but he he was almost leaning over to use it because he he wanted information from in front and so he's like holding the cane way out in front of him plus he has okay he's older so he's got a bit of a belly so frankly that contributes okay to how you're going to hold your cane and how comfortable you are using your cane so i mean clearly his cane was not long enough it was a traditional length you know a mobility specialist gave it to him but it was not long enough and i just said look try using mine you know he and i were roughly the same height he took my cane and uh, it made every difference in his gait, in how quickly he moved, in his posture. It was a it was a transformation. So I started really looking at the science behind what should make a cane, which is every the most important thing to a blind person, right? I mean, it's more important than just about any other tool. Uh, is your cane so? Uh, what would make the cane the most effective extension of our perceptual system? And the short answer to that really is um, the tip of the cane needs to land approximately approximately one body length, okay, one length of our own body from what I will call our core, which is the center of our body. So, so as you hold your cane, the tip of the cane uh, needs to fall uh, about as long as we are tall away from our feet. The interesting thing about human proportions is that uh, we are proportioned such that if you spread your arms out to your sides from fingertip to fingertip, you are as long as you are tall. Uh-huh. Okay, so our brain registers our uh, body height as a natural reference. So if you're using a haptic device for preview of the environment, meaning you're motor planning through your environment, we uh, seem to naturally expect information from about one body length, or let's just say three steps, from the center of our bodies. Mm-hmm. That's about what we expect. And if you look at the visual research, the research of how people use their eyes when they travel, with a bit of variance depending on the environment they're walking through, their eyes land at about this spot. It's about three steps. It's about one body length in front of them. That's where our eyes scan our environment the most. So we're visual creatures. That may sound a bit not PC to say because we're talking about blindness here, but blind sighted, we've already established that the visual brain functions 
for blind people. It's alive and well. So why not capitalize on its capacity to process information and provide to us uh, that information that we can use to affect our movements? So if your cane tip kind of, if you, if you think of your cane as a visual substitution, and if that tip lands approximately where your eyes would land if you were sighted, then you can expect your brain to be able to process that information most efficiently. And indeed, that is what we find. So if we provide a person, be it a child or an adult, uh, with a cane that is of the right length so that the tip lands at the right place, which is further away than this traditional cane that is typically issued, um, we find that people are able to adopt the cane quite quickly in, as a natural extension of the perceptual system. They learn to use it quickly, comfortably, gracefully, no matter what age they are, no matter what other disabilities they might have. It just happens. So uh, if you're an infant, if you're a preschooler, if you're an elderly person, if you're a person with autism, none of that really matters. Um, and the cane is light enough, so you don't have a big heavy tip on the cane. You have a tip that glides nicely and pleasantly, but doesn't weigh your, your cane down. So your cane is properly balanced. That seems to be the qualities that we have found uh, generate the best results most quickly. So that said, um, we uh, tend to gravitate toward uh, this is not an advertisement, it's not an endorsement, but we tend to use Swarovski canes. They're available from, um, from Swarovski, which is a Czech Republic cane. We use their uh, ORF5C um, composite cane. And uh, for adults, it comes up to about the nose. So nose to toes, you could say, um, with shoes on. So you measure with shoes on, because when people are outside, most people wear shoes. And you know you need to account for that when you're accounting for the, the length of your cane. For young children, uh, the cane's gonna be a bit longer because children don't tend to extend their arm. They just don't, they're not built that way. They don't tend to do that. Their arm tends to, to hang at their side. And so their cane needs to be a bit longer to accommodate for the fact that they don't really have arm extension. The mechanics behind the cane I'll go into very briefly. Um, I don't really believe in hand-centered. Um, I believe in, in an offset hand, so the hand, the arm rests comfortably. One of the biggest issues that I find with cane users is they are tense. Their shoulders are tense, their bodies are tense, their posture is tense. They've been taught in kind of a mechanical, sort of almost robotic way. And if you think about it, the orientation and mobility profession came out of the military profession. It was initially applied to blinded veterans. Uh-huh, yeah. Okay, so, um, so it almost makes sense that it should be so regimented, right? But these were people who, first of all, were all perfectly healthy, they were just blind. So they came from the war, they were all in very good shape, very good condition, and frankly, accustomed to following orders in a mechanical way. So you almost think of the cane being taught like marching or something. 
And I guess, I, I wasn't there, but I suppose blinded veterans responded well to that. But children don't. <laughs> and your typical civilian doesn't necessarily. And elderly people don't. And people with maybe health impairments don't. And people who have neurological syndromes don't. So you need something that easily becomes a natural extension of the perceptual system. And this is what we have found does. So with the arm, you know, hung a bit more naturally, your, your hand holding the cane in a comfortable, natural way, almost like you're shaking someone's hand, not like you're pointing, because no one points. You can, people point, but you don't spend your whole day pointing. It's not a comfortable, it's not a comfortable way to hold your hand. Your finger gets tired, your wrist gets tired. So we've developed a different method that doesn't tire your wrist, it doesn't tire your finger, it doesn't tire your hand, it doesn't tire your shoulder, you're not tense, you're relaxed, you're comfortable, and you can use your cane all day. The original cane technique that was designed for blinded veterans in veteran hospitals didn't assume that blind people would be using their cane all the time. It assumed you'd probably be guided much of the time because sighted guide was considered more efficient. It still is. So, you know, it wasn't even thought that a blind person would be traveling on their own as much as we now know is possible for blind people to do. So now you have a situation where more and more blind people are using their canes more and more frequently for longer periods and we are in fact finding that they are developing wrist problems, hand problems, arm problems, shoulder problems. It's not a widely spoken about thing, but this is what physiotherapists are telling us. This is what's happening. So we need to find a better way. And we don't say that we've developed a perfect way because there are always refinements to everything. And we'll do new things, better things as science progresses and as we gain more experience. But we have developed a way that um, that makes a huge difference in how quickly and comfortably and naturally people are able to use um, their cane. What's, what would you say is, um, is it better to use the cane and not echolocate or is it better to echolocate and not use the cane? Because I've heard some people say that, well, I have my cane, so why, why would I want to learn to click and, and hear things? Or on the other hand, I know how to click, so why do I want to use the cane? What's, well, what's, what's, what's the relationship between them? Yeah, it, it's, it, why not do both? Um, that I, I think of it as they're both ways of seeing. I think of both ways as, as sort of visual uh, um, replacements, if you will, because the visual brain is involved in echolocating for sure. We know this. I strongly suspect that people who are comfortable, confident, and fluid in the use of their cane, I think the same thing's happening. My hypothesis would be that the visual cortex is processing information gathered from the use of your cane if indeed your cane is in fact a natural perception of your, a uh, natural extension of your perceptual system. So the cane is good for what I would call near field, well, what, what science 
calls near field perception. So uh, it's good at helping you preview your environment from about you know a meter or two, depending on how tall you are, depending on how long your cane is, um, and uh, you get uh, information from the ground. Uh, a very good information from the ground. If your cane is a natural extension of your perceptual system, you can go anywhere with it. It doesn't matter what the terrain is like. It doesn't matter how broken it is or how complex it is. I've, I've done hiking in the Swiss Alps, in the Scottish Highlands. You know, I, it, I've walked across rivers and streams and I have my cane in one hand, my trekking pole in the other, and off I go. So, um, so the cane is good at ground level detection and near point, near field perception. That's what it's really, really good at. And it's great at it. And I tell people, your cane always tells you the truth. You just have to listen. The tactile system, the system of touch, is the most difficult perceptual system to fool. Vision is easy to fool. It's fooled all the time. Magicians are pros at it. They know exactly how to fool vision and they can do it every time, except for children who are hard to fool. Adults are easy to fool. The auditory system can be fooled as well, but the touch the system of touch is very difficult to fool. Your cane is going to give you good, solid information all the time. You just have to learn to listen and you have to learn to, to get the best information possible from the best cane possible using the best strategy possible. Echolocation, flash sonar, allows you access to information from way beyond the length of your cane. Um, not Ground level information is not the best for echolocation. It's not, echolocation is not conducive to picking up information at ground level very well, but it's, it's very good at picking up information above ground level at much greater distances. So, so if you're using active echolocation, you have access to far point information. Um, so you have access to um, buildings and trees and cars and uh, landmarks that are way beyond the sense of uh, the reach of your cane or the reach of your hand um, that you can use to navigate by. So echolocation provides really good navigational information and orientation information. It gives you far point information by which you can establish your position in space and establish your course through space. Whereas the cane is good at near point information, it basically keeps you quite successfully from running into stuff, from tripping over stuff, from falling into stuff. Uh, because it allows you to pick up information that echolocation doesn't, and frankly, it's a it's a it's kind of a last uh, um, resort alert system to detect things that echolocation might miss. Right, so um, they both feed the imaging system in the brain. They both feed the perceptual system. They both provide good, sound, solid, quality information to the perceptual system, so why not use them both in an integrated way? And when we teach people, we don't just teach one or the other, we teach both systems in combination, so that from the beginning, you learn 
to receive both sets of information and process both sets of information um, in an integrated way. Please subscribe if you want to hear more educational and inspirational podcasts and help us in our work with supporting visually impaired to become more independent. You may donate via our Facebook page, Visionaries Norway. Thank you for listening.